my name is Joe Mueller. Um, I am one of the elders here at Remedy. Um, and I am preaching today because I received a text at 3.55 this morning um, that Fudd uh, had gotten the death that was spreading amongst his family members. So, um, so uh, we're not in Ephesians today, which was planned. Uh, instead, we're going to be in the book of Psalms, uh, Psalm chapter 3. Um, and want to just give a little uh, preface uh, for this psalm before we, we jump in. Um, is this a, a psalm that's very near and dear to my heart? Uh, it's a psalm that I uh, love. It's a psalm that uh, we have learned in my family to sing. So I don't know if you know this, but you can sing psalms. Like, they're, they're, they're songs, actually. Um, and over the years, many people have... Uh, it's not the exact words that are here, but it's a different translation that's to meter, and you can sing it. Like, you can sing it to the tune of Amazing Grace, which is pretty cool uh, and pretty amazing. So, um, so we're going to be in, in Psalm 3. So if you would stand for the reading of God's word, uh, we, we shall read here uh, in a second. So Psalm 3, <clears throat> a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, How many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory in the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Go ahead and have a seat. So uh, this psalm is, is near and dear to my heart. Um, because as a, as a younger man, I struggled uh, with assurance. I struggled with the, the, the idea that salvation was mine. Um, the, the accusation that we find in verse 2, the, the many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him and God, is something that I felt in my very core. Um, and, and, and so this, this psalm became something precious to me uh, uh, as a young man. It became something that I came to over and over and over again because it spoke to me in my experience. Uh, this, the words of the psalmist were words that I would use uh, to describe how I felt. Um, and as a young man, these words... Uh, spoke to me. And, and I think that highlights for us something unique about the book of Psalms is they use the words of our experience. They use the words that speak to us in the situations in which we find ourselves in this thing called real life. Uh, they are full of language that is emotive and personal. And so I would just use this as an opportunity to commend the Psalms to you just generally. Read them and read them often. Uh, if you want, you read. Uh, you can read one or five psalms a day, and you'll read the whole book in a month. 
and you, and you do it by the day. So right on day one, you read Psalm 1. And on day two, uh, Psalm 1, Psalm 31, 61, 91, 121. And then day two, you read Psalm 2, 32. You have to do some math. Uh, but you'll get through the whole book of Psalms uh, in a month. Uh, and do that for a year, and you will know the book of Psalms. And the language of the Psalms will become familiar uh, to you. But so, so as a young man, this spoke to me in my personal struggle uh, with, with assurance of, of believing that I, not, not, not only was I saved, but even could I be saved. Um, but, but as we look um, at this, it, 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 I think it speaks to people in that situation. But I also think it, it speaks to uh, people in other situations as well. Uh, <clears throat> the the inscription of the psalm is the psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. And, and what is going on in, in the history of Israel is Absalom starts this rebellion against his father, against David. And he gathers this army together. And David, uh, in the middle of the night, has to flee with as much of his family as he's able to, to gather around him, with as much men as, as are there in Jerusalem with him at the time. Um, and they have to flee so quickly that one of his friends... Uh, uh, one of Saul's sons who has a lame, crippled foot can't come with them because they have to flee too fast. And they're afraid that they will be overtaken if they, they take him along. And so he's in a bad situation. His life experiences, the circumstances that he finds himself in are dire. Dire circumstances. Things are not going well for David when he pens this psalm. And so a lot of times when circumstances are dire, one of the accusations we can hear is that the circumstances we're in are, t- are a testament. They, they tell us that God has abandoned us, that God is not near to us, that God is not there to save us from our circumstances, that God is not uh, going to, to come to us and be our rescue. Instead, our circumstances are punishment. Our circumstances are what we deserve. Our circumstances are uh, just desserts for the way that we have lived our lives. And in some ways, our circumstances can preach to us, can, can tell us that there is no salvation for your soul in God. So, so I think this psalm speaks to those uh, two groups of people. And I think this psalm is a study on what it means to preach the gospel to ourselves in the midst of those types of circumstances. Uh, when, when life is oppressing us and, and crowding out uh, the message of the gospel, this psalm is a case study. It is a, an example of what it means to preach the gospel to who, we are, to, to who we are in our souls. And it's also a study of what it looks like to live life in faith. So if, you, if those are the only two things you get from uh, the message today, from examining God's word, I, I hope uh, that you do and you read the Psalms uh, because they are beautiful and they are our songbook. They've been given to us by the Lord. So let's get into the Psalm uh, proper, so to speak. And, and the first point uh, or the first thing for us to notice here is who is the Psalm addressing? Why does David, who does David address in the midst of his circumstances? When things are hard and his life is pressing in upon him, when he feels low and in the pit of despair, 
when the message that he is hearing from his circumstances is that God is not for you and you will not be saved, who does uh, David come to? Not Paul, David. David wrote the Psalms. Who does David come to? The answer is the Lord. Uh, verse 1, O Lord, how many are my foes? Uh, verse 3, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. Uh, verse 4, I cried aloud to the Lord. Verse 7, uh, or sorry, verse 5, uh, I awoke again for the Lord sustained me. Verse 7, arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. And verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. So Yahweh, the Lord, who is the Lord that David is here addressing? What does David conjure up in his mind when he thinks about the Lord? Well, the, the first thing that David thinks about is that the Lord is the creator. If you just flip over one or two pages, you'll, you'll be in Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8, verse 1. To the choir master, according to the Giddeth, the Psalm of David, another Psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Then skip down to verse 3. When I look at your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. So the Lord in David's mind is the creator. He is the creator of heaven and earth. He is the God who created the sun, the moon, the stars and set them all in their course in the heavens. He is the God who created man and angels. He is the God who created land and sea. He is the God who created air and ground. He is uh, the creator God. But who else is the Lord to David if you thumb over to Psalm 68, what else does David say about the Lord? Psalm 68. Uh, to the choir master, a psalm of David, a song. God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad, they shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Sing to God, sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord, exult before him. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. And I read that just because uh, you needed to hear that today, right? This is who God is. This is what God does. Now, verse 7 and 8 is really uh, what shows us who God is that, that David is thinking about it as he writes the Psalms. So verse 7, O God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain, before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. And so what this image is supposed to conjure up is that glory cloud that passed in front 
uh, of Israel as they marched through the wilderness after their exodus and, and rested on the Mount of Sinai and gave the law and, and this God before whom all the people trembled in fear as he boomed with thunder from Sinai and the earth shook. And so to David, the Lord is the deliverer from Egypt. The Lord is the covenant Lord of Israel. He is their creator and he is their redeemer. He is the one who set them free from their bondage in Egypt. And finally, uh, the, the last thing that David thinks about uh, uh, when he says the word Lord is actually Jesus. So if you look at Psalm 110, uh, this is quoted by Jesus in, in Matthew twenty-two forty-four, referring to himself. So Psalm 110, a Psalm of David, the Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so David here, thinking about his Lord and and the the Lord's Lord. So you have the Lord saying to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And Jesus applies this to himself. He is David's Lord. He is not only David's son, but he is David's Lord. And David is aware of this, and however much David was aware— He was aware of it, at least in part, maybe not to the fullness that we have today. But he is aware that someone from his line, a seed of David, will come and set his people free. And David addresses this Lord in Psalm 3. He addresses this creator God, this deliverer from Egypt, this Jesus, this Messiah, this one who is to come. And he calls him Lord. And and why does he address him? Why does he come to the Lord? Because of the calamity and the disaster and the opposition that David is facing. Says, O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. We see this also in the inscription of the psalm when he fled from Absalom, his son. And it, just a brief, very brief uh, history lesson here. So um, Absalom has a sister, and one of David's sons does something evil to his sister. And Absalom stews about it. He is angry and filled with rage, and he is especially angry at his father, who doesn't do the right thing. And so um, Absalom stews and stews and stews. He sets up this dinner party, kills his brother. And uh, because of that, he starts this rebellion against his father uh, with designs to take over the kingdom, kill David, uh, end David, and then he would be uh, the the man through whom David's line continues. He would be king of Israel. Uh, Intrigue, violence, war. David is in a tough spot. Um, Absalom has been sort of setting himself up as ruler. He sets himself up at the gate, starts adjudicating everybody's issues. So people think, oh, Absalom must be David's next in line. And and so um, David is in a tough spot. Um, And and so what I I want us to see here is that um, as David approaches this low point in his life, this point where his circumstances are crushing him. He comes to it, he comes to it, and he addresses the Lord. He addresses God. He comes to the God of heaven and earth, the deliverer from Egypt, Jesus, his king, and he addresses him here. And and the, the thing about this 
his circumstances is it could have appeared to him that he was done. That because of the way that he had lived his life in the past, uh, that his rule as king was done. He had no hope. And that's why he says in verse three, right? Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. He was looking at the circumstances of his life and examining them. And he saw that the message of the circumstances and the message of his enemies was that God was far off from him, that God was not for him, and that his promises could not possibly be true any longer for David. David was done. There was, there is no salvation for him in God. But I I think here, this is where uh, we need to examine uh, sort of how that cannot possibly be true, right? That cannot possibly be true because that is the exact opposite of what God has promised us in his word. Um, Exact opposite. So if we turn over to John uh, chapter one, we're gonna be in John for a little bit here in, in four different places. But starting in in John chapter one, what are the promises God makes to his people? I want us to examine that for a second here. Is there such a time or is there such a place or is there such um, a, a circumstance that can arrive upon us that somehow invalidates the promise of God? That somehow says God's promises cannot be for you any longer because what God has done is like, whoosh, is taken away. Can that ever be true? John 1, uh, 9 through 13. Uh, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. We're celebrating Christmas tomorrow, the birth of Jesus. And and this, in John 1, 9, reminds us of that. Where we're in the form of a baby, the light of the world comes and dwells among us. And grows as a man. And a man is human, right? Human, I'm using it in that way. And he's literally a man. Uh, but grows as a man uh, into the fullness of adulthood. So this light, he was uh, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Again, this creator God. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So this, this idea here, he gave the right to become children of God. So it, I want you, uh, example here is, if I walk into a courtroom, and I sit in the judge's seat, and I bang the gavel, and I say, order in the court, court is now in session. Does that make the court in session? No. I have zero right to do that. I have zero authority. I have zero capabilities to do that. Now, um, that is the same sort of idea that, that is being expressed here when it says, uh, he gave them the right to become children of God. It's, it's this idea of authority. 
It's this uh, idea of status and standing. It's this idea that you can do something and it is. And so whoever believes, this is what it said, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, if God gives you something, God gives you the right, the power, the authority, can someone take that away from you? Can someone steal that from you? Can someone remove that from your person? Do you, can someone invalidate your right, your power, your authority to become a child of God? John 3, uh, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. So when God uh, pronounces this uh, judgment of no condemnation, who is judged that can condemn you? Who is the person who can come and say, no, 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 no. What God said is false. There's no salvation for you. Who can do that? The answer is no one. No one can do that. When you have been given something by God, when you've been given the right, when he has passed no condemnation, who can come up to you and convince you otherwise? Our circumstances may try. The, the guilt that we may feel twisted uh, by the evil one may, may try to overcome us and defeat us with guilt and shame. But no one can change the word of the Lord. Again, John 10, John 10, uh, verse 27. They did not understand, or sorry, that's 8. Uh, 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So who, who is going to come up to Jesus and take you out of his hand? Who is going to be overpowering to Jesus? And take you away from him. Who is going to uh, slay the shepherd and steal the sheep from him? The answer is no one. No one can do that. John 17 is the last place we'll be in John. John 17 verse 20. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the word, world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. 
Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Now, uh, the the question here is, uh, so Jesus has given us his glory. He's given us his glory, and Jesus has prayed for us that we would remain in him and be perfectly one with each other and with him. Why would God the Father deny Jesus' prayer? Why would God the Father neglect it and say, Jesus, your prayer, it goes unheard and unheeded. I don't care what you prayed. The answer is God would never do that. He would never deny himself uh, in that way. What Jesus has prayed, what he has promised to us is ours. And, and these are precious promises that I have read in John 1 and John 3, John 10, John 17. These are things that Jesus himself has said regarding us. And when Jesus speaks, it behooves us, which means we should think about it. It behooves us to listen. When Jesus promises, his promises are true and valid. When Jesus says, jump, we say, how high, right? Because what Jesus says is amazing, and it's true, and it's valid. And when he commands and when he promises, there is nothing we can do but heed and obey. Now, these promises are also something that is important for us to see uh, because that's exactly where the psalmist goes. When the psalmist is faced, when David is faced with this crippling message of his life circumstances, when he is faced with this violence against himself and the fear of what's going to happen next, and as he examines himself and hears this message that there is no salvation for him and God, where does David go? Verse 3, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory and the lifter of my head. A shield about me. Remember what Jesus says in John 10, right? I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. God is the shield about us. He is the one who protects us unfailingly, unflinchingly, forever and ever and ever. God is our shield. And so David goes to this promise and he rests in it. He declares it over himself. But not only is God just our shield, not only is Jesus just our shield, he is also our glory. So John 1:14 The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
And that John 17, 22, the glory that you have given me, right? So that glory as of the only begotten son from the father, that glory, that splendor, that light, that glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me. Our glory, that promise of glory, that promise of union with God, that, that promise that for all of eternity we will breathe in the air of the Holy Spirit and we will be given eternal life to be with God and to explore his beauties and his intricacies and his wisdom and his knowledge forever and ever and ever. That glory is ours. And, and David goes there. You are a shield and you are my glory. But then he also says that you are the lifter of my head. And I always, I always get an image of a child in this, in this uh, lifter of my head um, thing. Because uh, child or pre- children are precious. Uh, they're also... Um, uh, they're also so raw with their emotions. And so um, if a child feels shame or a child feels guilt or a child feels um, sadness over what they've done and they are brought before the authority figure in their life, whether it's a parent or a teacher or um, a police officer or whatever, right? The child will have that expression of guilt and shame uh, on their face and they won't be able to look at that person in the eye. I see it with my own kids at home. They'll just come up and their head will be down. And they don't want to look at me. They don't want to see me. They don't want to look into my face. Because they know seeing my face uh, means that they're in trouble, right? But this is how God comes to us. He comes to us and he grabs our chin and he lifts our face. He lifts our face to look into his eyes. Into his face. He invites us, though we are beggars, right? Though we are beggars and rebellious beggars at that and enemies of God, he invites us into his family and he lifts our head and he looks into our face and he says, but all who did receive him, John 1, 12, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He gave the right to become children of God. 1 John 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Romans 8, uh, 4. For all who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and of children heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Jesus is the lifter of our head. Though we were full of shame and guilt, he has come to us. And and though we're dejected and downtrodden, he has lifted our head and invited us into our family. His family. So God, the God that David is addressing here is his shield and his glory and the lifter of his head. And so uh, the reminder here is that root yourself in these unshakable promises of God. 
Come back to them over and over and over again. Let John 1 and John 10 and John 17 and Romans 8 and all these places where God promises you things and declares the truth of who you are because of what Jesus has done. Come to them again and again and again and again. Because these promises are your promises. God is offering them to you today, right now. He is saying, if you believe, if you trust, if you hope in what Jesus has done, and say that what Jesus has done on the cross, he has done for me, I believe that and I trust that, then these promises are yours. They are yours today, and they will be yours forever. And I want us to remember something about these promises. If, if you look in Titus uh, chapter 1, it talks about how God who cannot lie in talking about the gospel. God who cannot lie. And I, once I get that, I'll read it to you. It says, Titus 1, 2, In hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. So this life that, that's brought to us in God was promised before the ages began. This is the, the pactum salutis, the covenant of redemption. God has promised before the ages began that you would have eternal life by believing. And then at the proper time, he manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. And so our, our response here uh, to this word of, of what Jesus has done and what Jesus has promised, the only response is belief. That's the only way that we can enter in uh, to these promises of God. It's not by doing good things, even though we will do good things if we trust and hope in Christ. The only way to enter into these promises and to, and to accept what Jesus has done on your behalf is to believe and trust that what Jesus has done, he has done for you. And as you do that, all of those promises become yours. All of the true things that Jesus has said are yours, and they are unshakably yours. They are forever yours. They are yours no matter the circumstance, no matter the guilt or the shame that you may feel personally. There's nothing more true than what Jesus has said. And they are yours forever because God does not lie. And then I also want us to remember Job uh, 42.2. Now, if you know the story of Job, Job was a, a righteous, wealthy, rich man who really, uh, who had some really bad things happen to him. Very, very bad. Uh, lost all his kids. His wife uh, abandoned him. Um, he had sickness, a, a sickness that left him in intense pain and anguish. And he had terrible friends who come up to him and, and like, it's all your fault, Job. You just need to repent. Um, this is all your fault. Everything that happened to you is because of you. And what you need to do is you need to acknowledge that and repent. And so Job, he's just a man, right? In the midst of all that pain and suffering and in the, the non, what's the opposite of consolation? 
the opposite of consolation of his friends, right? The aggravation. He gets aggravated with his friends who keep saying this. And, and so he, he has his, a little bit of his own rebellion. And he's like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. God needs to come down and explain himself. Then you'll, then you'll see. This isn't my fault. God needs to come down and explain himself. And that's, that's how Job ends. Um, that's not how Job ends. That's how Job's discourse sort of ends. And then God does come down. But does God explain himself? No. Right? He just says, hey, Job, I want to remind you something. I'm God. I am the Lord. My ways are unsearchable. I have all wisdom. I have all knowledge. I created the world, Job. Are you going to tell me how to run it? And do you know what, Job, this is Job's response. Verse 42 too. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And so what Job does here is he, he acknowledges that God is sovereign. That God is Lord. And that's a good promise. So what God has intended in this covenant before all the ages began to save a people, to save you, cannot be thwarted. No matter what may come from circumstances in your life, no matter what sins you're struggling with and fighting with, nothing can overcome the purpose of God. Nothing can destroy his purposes in you. And so what what is our response to this? Because some of us are struggling with sins. Some of us are struggling with circumstances that feel crushing to us. In our, soul, in our souls, we hear this message that you have no salvation. God has abandoned you. You are left to yourselves. You have messed it up. Nothing can redeem you. Where do we go when that's the message that we're hearing? The answer is in verse 4. I cried aloud to the Lord. And what is the content of that cry? Look in verse 7. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. You call upon the name of the Lord. That's our response when we are crushed by our own sin. When our sin tells us that you are a sinner and there is no hope for you. Or when our circumstances are crushing our souls and they say, God has abandoned you. We go to God and we call upon his name and we say, Lord, save me. Save me, my God. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. Because in Romans, Romans chapter 10, uh, starting in, in verse 9, this is a, a precious, another precious, precious promise of God. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scriptures say, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Not a single one 
will be put to shame. Not one. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. Everyone. Not a single one won't. That's another way to say it. Not no one never who calls. I think I did that right. God will save you. God will save you. And I also like to point out that it's okay to get a little aggressive in our calls to be saved. Aggression is okay. Uh, If you look in verse 7, it gives this beautiful picture, which my kids love to sing, by the way. Psalm 3 is great for singing. Um, So it says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek and you break the teeth of the wicked. Um, Anybody a boxer? Boxer? Now, imagine that you are a boxer and you have really powerful hands. Really powerful. Like super powerful. Um, And you're boxing someone and maybe, you know, you let loose a little bit and you punch them so hard, like right in the face, that you break all of their teeth right here, right? Pretty, uh, you don't want to ever do that to someone, but imagine the power in those fists, right? Imagine the might in your hands that you hit someone so hard that you break the the teeth right out of their mouth, just right out, all the teeth gone. Um, That is how powerful God's hands are. God is that boxer, not you. And God wants to do that to our spiritual foes. God wants to be the God who comes up to those lying, scheming, evil uh, principalities of this air that, that send us this message that there's no salvation for you. God has abandoned you. God has left you. You are irredeemable. God wants us to pray this prayer. And God wants to be the man, the Jesus wants to be the man who walks up to that accuser, to that, to that person who is trying to steal your soul and squelch your faith and drive you away from God. He wants to be the man who walks up and punches that person in the face so hard his teeth are gone. Now imagine that that just happens to you, you physically. Are you going to talk? Are you going to say another word? Is there any more that's going to come out of your mouth? Not for a really long time, right? Not for a really, really, really long time. And so God wants to shut the mouths of our accusers. He wants to smash them into the ground. Uh, Other ways that that God um, talks about defeating these enemies is he wants to be like a a slug. You guys seen slugs on the ground? That as as it goes along, it just dissolves like the little goo it leaves behind, is just it evaporating as it goes. Or like a, an arrow that just like burns before it even hits its mark. That's what God wants to do to our enemies. Spiritual enemies. Not talking about physical people here, right? Physical people are our brothers and our sisters, and they are being blinded, even though sometimes they may appear to be our enemy. They never are, right? And so we love them. We show compassion for them, and we pray for them, and we stand up under the, the burden of their sins. 
as they attack us, because we can be attacked, you can be attacked by a person. But we never pray these sorts of prayers against them. Uh, Jesus, up on the cross, didn't pray Psalm 3, right? He prayed, Father, forgive. And so we can take that too. But there is a prayer, and there is a time to pray these aggressive, violent, angry prayers. And that's when we're addressing our, our spiritual enemies and our spiritual foes that seek to, to destroy us, to devour us, right? The, the devil is like a roaring lion seeking whom he, he may devour. Uh, and a lion, I'm not going to be scared of a lion if it's just been punched in the face and its teeth are scattered on the floor. And neither will you. And so it's okay to pray this way. It's okay to come with violence against our enemies. And so calling upon the name of the Lord in, in verse 4 and 7 is, is simply uh, an extension. It is an action that, that shows us that there's something else going on in our hearts. And what is that other thing? What is that other thing that calling upon the name of the Lord signifies and uh, is an example of that already lives within us? In order to call upon the name of the Lord, this thing has to be there. What is that thing? The answer is faith. 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 This psalm calls us to believe in Jesus. Believe what he says is true. And believe what he says is true, not for people in general, but for you specifically, for you in your life today, that your circumstances are not the end of you, that it is not true that there is no salvation for you and God, that what Jesus has said, that no one can snatch you from my hand, that what Jesus said is true, that when Jesus says, I have given you who are believing the right to become my child, so no one can say to you that there is no hope for you that there is no salvation for you, that you are not a child of God. God's promises are yours in Christ, not because you are good, but because Christ is everything. Because Christ Jesus came and died on a cross and he paved the way. He bought you. And who can take you from Christ? Who can take you that he has bought? Can circumstances or sins? No, Jesus died for those sins. And Jesus overcomes all of those circumstances. And so the call today is to have faith. Faith. Now, faith is restfully active and actively restful. Faith is restfully active and actively Restful. I mean, look at, the, look at the psalm here. What does David do? What's he doing in the psalm? Well, he uh, cries aloud in verse 4. Um, what else does he do? Uh, he sleeps. So like me, going to bed is an action, right? Like, I have to go to bed. But then he sleeps. Uh, he says, I will not be afraid. And, and he says the words, arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. So that's action, right? It's action that, that um, <clears throat> believes something about God to be true and acts accordingly, right? So if you believe God is there to save, what do you do? You ask him to save you. And, and then if you ask him to save you, you believe that he's going to, and then you do the actions of someone who believes that you're going to be saved, right? In this case, he sleeps. 
He gets some Z's, some Shaddai. That's not always the case in our lives. Uh, sometimes the, the next appropriate action is, is to do something else. Like uh, sometimes it's call a friend, uh, right? Sometimes it is uh, turn off your computer. Sometimes it's literally go to sleep. Uh, sometimes it's leave that situation, right? All these things are um, steps that we can be taking uh, that are small, but they are actions of faith. They are us believing that what God says he will do. Now, it's also restful, right? Uh, it's restful um, to have faith uh, because when he cries aloud to the Lord, he waits for God to answer him from his holy hill. When uh, he lies down, he sleeps, right? Sleep is probably the most restful thing in the whole world, um, and he sleeps. Why does he sleep? Because the Lord sustained him. He believed that the Lord would sustain him. And then he cries aloud to God for salvation, for deliverance, for freedom. And he trusts in the jaw-shattering blows of his God to silence his enemies. So faith. Now, um, want to leave us with an example. So David is a, is a shining example here of someone who is, is in a circumstance that is bad, right? So this is my two paths. Circumstances are bad, and he responds immediately with faith. Immediately. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. He trusts in those promises immediately. So a shining example. Exodus 14 provides us a non-shining example. So Exodus chapter 14. What's happened so far in the story of Exodus is all the plagues have come. The people uh, of Israel have left Egypt after the last plague. They're walking along, um, and then they notice that off in the distance, I see, I see dust rising. Oh no, Pharaoh's army's coming. Right? And they are intimately familiar with the might and power of Pharaoh's army. They have been slaves to Pharaoh for years and years and years. Um, and so the, the might of Pharaoh's arm is, they're familiar with it. They've been beaten by Pharaoh. They've had children uh, taken from them and murdered. Right? So they are intimately aware with the power and the might of Pharaoh. And his army. They've also just seen the might of Egypt uh, crumble before the, the plagues of Yahweh. And, but, but they've seen that, but I don't think that's settled in for them yet. Because look and, and hear what happens in Exodus uh, 14. They've, they're seeing the, the smoke rise from Pharaoh's chariots. And they, they, they look out, <clears throat> again, they look out and they're like, hey, we don't have any weapons. We don't have anything to protect ourselves. They're coming, and all we have is this water behind us. And if we go in the water, we'll drown and die. And if we stay here, the chariots will just come through us and mow us all down. And we're all going to die. Guys, we're going to die. So Exodus 14.10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching against them, and they feared greatly. They were terrified. Their circumstances were saying, no salvation for you in God. It's going to end badly. 
And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Again, we have this crying out. They said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would be better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in the wilderness. So they come to this circumstances and they're not like David. They don't say, O Lord, my shield, my glory, and the lifter of my head. They don't say that. They look at their circumstances and they say, Why, God? Why is this happening to me? There's no salvation for me. I am out of it. I am done for. I am kaput. And so how does Moses respond to them in that situation when they're in that dark place, when, when they feel themselves in the pit, when they feel like death is knocking on the door and their end is nigh and that there is no salvation for them? Moses says this, and God says this to us today. And Moses said to the people in verse 13, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you, shall only, uh, you have only to be silent. You have only to be silent. And so uh, that's a reminder to us today, is it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. If you have come to your circumstances and you've landed in faith, or you have come to your circumstances and you have landed in the pit of despair, and you feel like these um, uh, Israelites did, that, man, I am going to die. There is no hope for me today. The message for us and the way that we get to the place where we end up like David is that we listen to those words of, of Moses and we trust in the promises that we read in John 1, in John 10, in John 17, in Romans 8. And we preach the gospel to ourselves. We preach those promises and we go like, no, that pit of despair is not for me. God has called me to, to call upon his name and to trust in him. What God has said to me is true. It is truer than how I feel today. It is truer than the message of my circumstances. It is the truest thing that could possibly be is what Jesus Christ has said because Jesus is God. And he proved it to us all by rising from the dead. And we can work ourselves from here, from despair, over into faith. And that process is faith. Like that movement, left, like left to right, is faith. It's faith. And so uh, we, in this despair, we may not be able to do it ourselves. We, we probably are not able to do it ourselves. We are... 100% likely not to be able to do it ourselves. We need a Moses. We need somebody to say, hey, remember the gospel. Remember the good news that Jesus has said to you. Remember his promise. Remember his obedience. Remember what he did on that cross. Remember him rising again. Remember all the promises that he wooed your heart with. Remember them all. And so sometimes in that pit, we have to cry out. We cry out to the Lord and we cry out to each other. We have to do that. We have 
to come to that spot. Because faith is so important. Trusting the Lord to fight for us and acting like he will is the essence of faith. It is how we live this life that's going on around us. It is how we deal with life's circumstances as they come to us. It is how we kill the sin that entangles us and sends us into guilt and to shame and steals our assurance. Faith, believing what Jesus has said. He doesn't just say generally to people, but he says to you specifically. It says the word is living and active. That's what it means. It means that the word is alive today. And when Jesus speaks, when, the, when Moses speaks, when the Old Testament speaks, when the Psalms speak, they're speaking to you. They're speaking to your life. They're speaking uh, loud and clear. And they're calling you to believe in Jesus. So let's pray.